uh, in the church, in a, wor- in a worship center, there are elephants in the room. There are certain uh, subjects that people are dealing with or have feelings about, but it's like we don't really want to talk about it. So we're going to talk about some of these and look into God's Word on that. Today we're going to talk about racism. And uh, I know living in Birmingham, Alabama, we've not had any experience uh, with this. But um, what brought this to my mind was the movie Selma that was coming out representing the 50th anniversary of the uh, uh, march from Selma to Montgomery uh, for African Americans in attempting to get some changes to voter registration and to allow them to have the right to vote. Um, I knew I was going to be doing a lot of traveling over Christmas. I went to the Vestavia Library and I was looking for audio books and I found an audio book that was called A Knock on the Door at Midnight, Sermons from Martin Luther King, Jr., You know, I'd never heard a sermon that he had preached. I've heard people tell me things that he said or didn't say. So I listened to sermons that he preached from age 25 all the way up till he was 39 years of age. And I was, I was fascinated. I would joke people because I would be listening to it and I would drive into our garage, uh, and, and Janice almost feel like she got to stick her head out there. What are you doing? (laughs) I'm still listening. Hold on. (laughs) It's not a good place to stop. And as I would listen, I began to hear his heart and his words. But one of the things I heard is a man that was preaching in the 1960s talking about some of the attitudes that they were struggling with and people were struggling with in the 1960s. We still struggle with in 2015. It was as relevant then as it is today. And you could listen to those sermons and say, well, that was preached right in 2015. So that got me thinking. And God just impressed on my heart, and he says, Danny, you, you need to tackle this. And then there's some other issues. He says, let's, let's tackle, tackle this. So as I walk into talking about this sermon on racism, I understand in the 30, 35 minutes we have uh, that we're not going to solve everything, but hopefully get a theological, biblical foundation for how we can deal with this, um, this in racism. And... Um, I'm just on the front end going to apologize because I've got about 6,000 things that have gone through my head, and I've got 4,000 of them written here, so that it's that other 2,000 that are going to intersect somewhere, okay? So just hang with me. But they're all good. They're all important. I was raised in the, in the um, born in 1953, so I was raised in the 60s, and uh, it was a tumultuous time uh, for, for racial relations. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had our own share of racial challenges. The face of segregation was a guy by the name of Lester Maddox. Lester Maddox owned a restaurant called the Pickrick Restaurant. He was a folksy kind of guy, had uh, just kind of like meat and vegetable place to eat. And it was near Georgia Tech. And anybody could eat there except for blacks. And he wouldn't let, uh, he was a strict segregationist and no one could come in to his restaurant. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and as it was passed, most of the businesses in Atlanta had already desegregated, but not Lester Maddox's place, the Pickrick Restaurant. And so as soon as the act passed, they felt that someone was going to challenge him and his restaurant. So sure enough, three black activists showed up in July of 1964, and Lester Maddox had a pickaxe, axe handle, 
and of some other men, and they greeted these that came in, and they forcibly kept them from eating at his restaurant. So he was known as Lester Maddox with the pickaxe, with the handle. Trial went to court on uh, discrimination. The trial lasted for a year, and at the end of that year, the courts came back and said that he was wrong and that he needed to open his restaurant up to all people. He then promptly sold the restaurant. Rather than allowing blacks to come in and eat at his restaurant, he sold his restaurant. And what I'm getting ready to tell you is racism and prejudice is a really confusing thing. It's really hard to get a handle on it. Because you see, in 1966, Lester Maddox got elected governor of Georgia. He ran against a strong Republican, and uh, uh, because there was a write-in for someone else, they didn't get the, uh, no one got 50%, so they went, it was a Democratic-controlled House and Senate there in Georgia, and so they selected Lester Maddox to be the governor, the face of segregation. But when you read about Lester Maddox and his four years of serving as governor, he appointed more African-Americans to government positions than any other Georgia governor combined. He was the first one to select an African-American to be a state trooper and the first one to put them on the state board of corrections. Go figure. He wouldn't let someone sit at his lunch counter, but now he's appointing them and putting them in positions. I didn't, it didn't, didn't make sense to me. Didn't make sense at times growing up in my house. My dad, he struggled with prejudice. And uh, he was, could be pretty bigoted at times. And you try to find out reasons why on there, but it was, it was there. And, uh, and there, was, there, was a, there was a lot of... Um, it just you kind of feel some hatred there. But then while my dad worked at Sears and Roebuck, he was also a jazz musician. And if you walked into our house, you would hear music playing throughout our house with Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, African-American entertainers. And if I had gone to my dad and said, I don't think they're any good, he'd have taken me out right there. He would have stood for them, and yet they were They were black. And I remember sitting with him and my family and Janice in 1982 in the Legion Field uh, at Auburn-Alabama game when Bo Jackson, African-American, goes over the top and we finally beat Alabama the first time in nine years. We wept, we cried, we rejoiced. And if Bo Jackson had run up in the stands, my dad would have embraced him and said, will you be a part of our family? I said, well, how how can you be positive on this end? And then over here... Say such hateful things, you know, to others. It's confusing. The movie uh, Remember the Titans is, is a story uh, that's based off of in Virginia when desegregation was taking place and integration taking place and they're bringing together black schools and white schools and, and all the pressures they had. And then you've got this football team that's trying to make all this work. And after one of the victories, quarterback named Sunshine, who's from, who just moved from California, is walking with some others. And Petey, uh, one of the African-American young boys who grew up there in Virginia, they're walking downtown. And all of a sudden, 
The white quarterback says, let's go in this restaurant and get something to eat. And they go, no, no, we, we can't do that. Oh, no, come on in. It's something. No, no, promise me. He said, no, come on in. They get in. The proprietor walks up. And he says, I'm the proprietor. I own this business. It's my choice as to who I'm going to serve. And you boys, if y'all want some food, just go around back, and they'll give you some out of the kitchen. And as they are walking out, getting back on the street, Petey says, I told you. And he says, Sunshine says, but I didn't know. And Petey said a statement that has always stayed with me. He says, the problem is you don't want to know. You don't want to know. And as I've heard that, that has gone through my head throughout this whole two weeks as I've thought through this sermon. It's, it's, you don't want to know. You see, it's easier for me just to look at someone's color and easier for you to say and, then, and have some prejudice to them because of things that we read about in the news or see on TV. But we don't understand the whole story because a lot of times we don't want to know. In 1965, from the Selma march from Selma to Montgomery, in the spring of that year, I was 11 years old and I was at our whites-only swimming pool in a community and I still hear today a man that sat right there in a chair and said, yeah, I talked to a trucker brother of mine. He said if he'd have been there, he'd have run over every one of them. You just fill in the blank. Every one of them blacks, he'd have run them over in their truck. And all these people around him are laughing. Now I'm 11. And I'm trying to figure this out. And all I know from talking to these people is we've got a, a, a bunch of black folks over here that are being agitators and causing problems. And it's almost like this little voice is saying, you just don't want to know. Do you understand what they were doing? Did you understand that, that they could not vote? Did, did you not understand that those that lived in that county and in that area and a lot of, through the state of Alabama, that when they would walk up to a courthouse and they would say, I, I want to, to, to be able to register to vote, that those that were in charge would then begin to ask them questions that a third-year law student might know? about the Constitution, about everything else, about naming the judges in the state of Alabama, and when they couldn't answer those questions, they would say deny. And so here you were, a black person living in a city to where you could not vote for those that you want to serve you, and you couldn't serve on a jury because you had to be a, uh, registered as a voter in order to serve on a jury. And since you couldn't be a voter, registered as a voter, you couldn't serve on a jury. And so whenever there were trials that came up, you, you're... Your race had no voice as to what happened. That's just not right. I mean, that's pretty clear. But just, that's not the story I heard as an 11-year-old boy. I'm sure there's just a bunch of troublemakers over there that are causing problems. And I think back on that, and I said, this guy just didn't want to know. He didn't want to know. And how often do we come to this point in our life to where we... Just don't want to know. It's just easier to say, well, I'm going to be prejudiced towards this person or that person. The most famous letter that Martin Luther King ever wrote is what was called A Letter from a Jail in Birmingham. And in April of 1963, Dr. King came to Birmingham for a peaceful protest of trying to get civil rights enacted. And in Birmingham, they said there was an ordinance that you couldn't do a peaceful protest. And he said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And they said, well, we're going to throw you in jail. So they put him in jail, put him in solitary confinement. 
And on April 16th, they uh, brought him a newspaper. And in the newspaper, there was a small article written by eight southern pastors in Birmingham. And in their article, they said, we're wanting the Negro people and Dr. King and all believers to just wait. Just wait. Stop all these sit-ins. Stop this, this uh, peaceful protest. Just wait. The new administration has been elected. And if you just wait, then some changes will take place. And when he saw that letter, he then took a sheet of paper in longhand, wrote an amazing letter that was aimed towards pastors, to these pastors. And it says the reason for the letter was because they told him to wait. And Dr. King said, I feel like we've waited long enough. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. And then he gives a long section that he says, let me just tell you what it's like to be a black man in the South in 1963. Let me just read it to you. Perhaps it's easy for those who've never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that she has just been advertised on television, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. And you see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. Or when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and you find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day, haunted by night by the fact that you're a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you're forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you'll understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. That was life in the 60s on there. I was 10, 11-year-old boy. 
I didn't know 95% of this. I just didn't know. And it was so easy to just listen to stereotypes that are talked about in your home or at work or at school and pick those up and then build these prejudices along the way. There was a statement uh, that I didn't put the quote here, but Crawford Loritz said, the saddest thing is that the church didn't step up, but what the church did was it waited for the government to do something. Mm. The church should have been the voices. It's a lot easier to look back 50 years from now, but I'm just telling you, the church needed to be the voice and not wait for the government to step up. The government stepped up, civil rights acts, the voting right acts, those things happened in 64, 65, and then everyone says, okay, everything's going to be fine. But it wasn't. Because even though you had laws in the book, there were still those attitudes inside of people. And it carries on. Now I'm going to show you something. I want to show you a picture up here of uh, when I went to work at the telephone company at South Central Bell. When I went to work at South Central Bell, this was the marketing team. Now, there are a few things you're going to notice uh, over here. First of all, real good-looking guy right there, okay? Uh, that, was the, that was the guy. They said he's so good-looking, got to put him on the back row uh, over there. And uh, we got Gail Parks right here. I don't know if Gail's here. I know she had some surgery, but that's her groupies over there. Uh, Gail Parks was there. Linda Ball, who's a member of our church, was right there. The other thing that you notice about this picture is about 98% of us are what? White. We have two African-Americans. And where are they? We got one here and we got one here. We look like a giant double-stuffed Oreo uh, over here. So as you're a photographer and you're trying to set up where this picture is going to be, where do you put Dave Sweet and Jim Brown over here? And I thought that was kind of humorous. The one African-American that I had in my office you kind of either went by Jim Brown or James Brown. And so I said, did we make these things up? Uh, he's either a great football player or an amazing singer uh, over here. We've got these guys on the end over here. So if you're a photographer, you could either put them on the bookends or you maybe could have put them just together on the side. But wouldn't it have been nice to just put them like right in here or right over in here? So that when they were in that picture, there was a white person here, a white person here, a white person here, and a white person here. And what they would have been communicating is, you're not just with us, you're a part of us. You're a part of us. And I think some of us, this is our attitudes even today. Oh yeah, we'll let you be with us, but you're not really going to be a part of us. And what our hope is today is as we go through scripture and take a look at this, that we can understand what it means for all races to let all races to be a part of us and not just to be with us. This is more than just a black-white thing. As you know, as our country begins to grow with with more immigrants coming in and we have Latino and Asian and Arab and, and people from all over the world are coming to America, Statisticians tell us that by the year 2050, for the first time in the history of America, there will not be a majority. It'll be a majority minority. There'll be no race that will have over 50%. So what I'm telling all of us, and especially even our younger generations, we got to get a good handle on this because all it's going to do is continue to grow. So it's an ethnicity thing, not just a black-white, but it's an ethnicity thing 
But because of our background and what we've gone through historically, we may have to focus a little more on the black-white. But it's, it's, it's everywhere, okay? And, uh, and we've got both ends when we deal with racism. There are whites that have prejudicial attitudes towards blacks. There are blacks that have prejudicial attitudes towards whites. This is our agreement as we get ready to move on with this message. What we have to put aside is all the things that either you've seen politically or ideologically and put those off the table. Because if we begin to talk about race, there'll be people that will say, well, I don't like the way the government does this or I don't like what this group did here. I want you to put all that aside. We're looking at individuals, okay? This is where we, when you deal with prejudice and you, you, you deal with racism, just look at individuals, okay? And that's what we want to do the focus on. You focus on the individual. If there's some things that you don't like politically, there are places to go talk about that, elect people, fight for whatever it is that needs to be done. But when it comes to individuals, let's focus on what the Bible says about that. Are you ready? All right, I want you to write these down. Biblical principles for race relations. Are you ready? Number one, humanity was created in the image of God, and therefore every human is of infinite worth. Humanity was created in the image of God, therefore every human is of infinite worth. The emphasis on every. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God revealed his intent for justice in the act of creation when he created man in his own image and in his own likeness. He put all people on an even plane, regardless of color, worthy of dignity and respect. That's the way God started out from the beginning. He had one plan. Everyone was created in the image of God, ground is level. Number two, all human beings are a single family and have a common origin. All human beings are a single family and have a common origin. Get ready for this. We all come from the same seed. Genesis 1, God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, threw them out of the garden. Then uh, after they were out of the garden, uh, then as their family began to grow, it says as it growed, then unrighteousness grew, and then God says, I need to destroy it and kind of do a do-over. So he sent the flood. He chose one family, Noah. And with that family, he, they made it through the flood. When they got out, he says, you need to populate the earth. And every nation, clan, tribe, language comes out of the sons of Noah, But then the sons of Noah bring their lineage back to Adam and Eve. We have a single family, a common origin. Acts 17, 26, Apostle Paul, when he's teaching about this, says, And he made from man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, I want you to look at this for just a moment. There were some pastors that would use that verse to say that Bible teaches segregation. See, they've got their allotted boundaries, got their places, they're all supposed to be here and neither here. That's not talking about race at all. It's talking about nations. It's talking about having your, your dotted line directions to where your nation is. This is not talking about that races are to be segregated and have their own place. He says they're countries you set up. you got nation boundaries on there. God designed a human family that would originate from one father and one mother. And from that common ancestry would come a diverse litany of clans dwelling in distant lands and developing new nations. 
So whatever color you are, you are a part of the family because we are all part of the same race. We are all part of the same race. We have all come from Adam and Eve. We've all been created in the image of God. And so we've come from the same origin. And because of that, we all need the same gospel. And that's the third point. And that is that Jesus Christ died for the redemption of every person, regardless of race or nationality. Jesus Christ died for the redemption of every person, regardless of race or nationality. Now, we think that we've got some prejudice between blacks and whites. I tell you what, in the New Testament time, the prejudice that Jews had against Gentiles, against Samaritans, it was bad. It was bad. I mean, Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. I mean, it was against their belief to even go in and sit in their house and to have a meal with them. They even said that if a Jewish man married a Gentile woman, you know what they'd do? They'd hold a funeral for him. (laughs) Well, that's a great start to your marriage, isn't it? They would hold a funeral service for them. In the mind of a Jew, the Gentiles were kindling fire for the fuel, to fuel the fires of hell. That's what they were. They were just kindling for the fires of hell. And they had huge separation. Well, you have to remember that when you start reading these letters in the, in the New Testament, this letter to Ephesus, this is mainly made up of Gentiles who've received Christ as Savior. And so Paul is writing to them. And look what Paul says. It starts in the 11th verse of chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow, that's terrible. You're separated from God. You're separated from his promises. You're separate. You had no hope, no hope. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were once separated, you've now been brought near because Christ died on the cross for your sins and it is open to everyone, not just the Jew, but to the Gentiles also. And he says, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace he broke down this wall of hostility there was a dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles it was a wall of hostility you saw this pictured in the temple If you went to the temple in Jerusalem, there were different sections. In the center, it was the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there one time a year. Then when you move out from there, there was the court of the priest, where only the priest could go. Then there was another court out here, and it was called the court of Israel, which was where the men could go. Then there was another area back over here, and it was where the women could go. And if you went down five steps, there was a walled platform... Then you go down 14 more steps, there's another wall, and behind that, the Gentiles could be. Archaeologists have found an excavation of a sign that says, that was placed in the temple, that if any Gentile went beyond that wall, 
they could be killed. That's not one of the better church growth methods uh, that we know of. So what it means, if I'm a Gentile and I come and I said, I, I want to come to the, to the temple, I'd like to, to worship uh, over here this God. All they could do is, almost at a distance, take a look. They, they were separated. There were these walls of hostility. And he said, you know what Christ did? He said he broke down that wall of hostility. And he said, Jew and Gentile, you come, you come together. That wall is broken down. Now listen, we need to understand this is the unique power of the gospel to reunite people from different ethnic groups. In the beginning, sin separated man and woman from God and also from one another. And this sin was this root of this ethnic pride and prejudice. And when Christ went to the cross, he conquered sin, making the way for people to be free from its hold and he restored to God and be restored to God. He paved the way for all people to be reconciled to one another. Now, when we read this, and we read this in the book of Ephesians, and, and as you go through Sunday school, we rejoice with that. We say, isn't that great? The Jews and the Gentiles, they both have the gospel. Well, just take that out and say, the white people and the black people. It's the exact same. That wall of hostility is broken down, and it says that we are one. And just as a Jew is not to continue to have prejudice over a Gentile and vice versa, then we as as whites are not to have a prejudice towards blacks, and blacks are not to have prejudice towards white. Or to be politically correct, Anglo-Americans are not to be prejudiced over African-Americans, however you want to say it. He says that wall of hostility has been taken down. Then look what he says in verses uh, 18 as he continues on. And he says, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Wow. You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that is truly described as an equal opportunity faith. All Christians stand on level ground before the cross of Christ, young and old, male and female, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, black, white, every other color. We are all sinners in need of salvation. That is what is so great. I will come to the cross as a white person saying, I am lost in my sins, and a black brother can come up and kneel right there, and he says, I am lost in my sins too. I said, brother, we're... We're on the same ground here. It is level. We both need Christ to save us from our sins. And when he does, we are joined together and we're brothers in the faith. In Galatians chapter 3, 27 through 28, Paul summarizes this. For as many as you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? There's a oneness there that we're to look at for all races. Let me give you the fourth point, and that is prejudice is a sin and is not in step with the gospel. Prejudice is a sin and is not in step with the gospel. Paul was writing a letter to the Galatians, and as he wrote a letter to the Galatians, he pointed out a situation that happened with Peter, and I want you to see this. It says in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, but when Peter came to Antioch, now Antioch is where it says that they were first called Christians, Gentile city, 
made decisions for Christ. The beginning, the birth of the, of the church movement is right there in Antioch. But when Peter came to Antioch, he opposed, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they drew, when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what does that mean? What it means is Peter lives in Jerusalem. He travels up to Antioch. He's hanging out with the new believers, and it's lunchtime. And so he's sitting at the table with Gentiles. Now, Jews have their particular diet, and, and Gentiles don't have restrictions on theirs. And there were some arguments as should the Gentiles eat the food like the Jews and all of that. And here is Peter, and he's sitting at their table having fellowship with these Gentiles who are now believers in Christ. And he's having a good time. Then all of a sudden, somebody tells him, says, hey, I got news for you. All the big religious buckety mucks from Jerusalem are getting ready to come up and hang out in Antioch just to look at the church. Well, guess what? As soon as the muckety mucks show up, he leaves the table with the Gentiles, and he goes over and sits with his little Jewish brothers eating his little Jewish food. And he's dished these Gentiles over here. Paul has been watching that. And he said, that's just hypocrisy. And then he makes the statement that should resonate with each one of us. And look what it says. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Look at that phrase. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That means their act of prejudice, their act of racism, their act of hypocrisy was not in step with the gospel. Because that's opposite of what God's word would say. He says, so I confronted him. And I said to Peter before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There was an hypocrisy that took place right there. And he do it. And so what Paul here makes, he makes an issue of race, culture, and favoritism at the core of a gospel issue. He says this is a gospel issue. Whenever there is race, culture, favoritism, it is inconsistent with the gospel for believers to lift up the name of Jesus with one hand and hold on to racial attitudes, thoughts, beliefs, or actions in the other hand. The gospel will dominate a person, and part of the reconstruction of that person will be a reorienting of their view of everything, including race. God's word should come into our hearts and reorient who we are and even deal with those racial attitudes. All right? This is how we're going to close the message. So how do you do that? So how do you overcome racism? Are you ready? I'm just going to give you a list. I promise you when you write these down, you're not going to walk out of here and say, I'm changed. It's going to give you a start. Are you ready? Number one, remove passivity, be intentional. Remove passivity, be intentional. What drove Martin Luther King to write that letter from the jail is that everybody was just saying, let's wait. Let's just be real passive and let time work its way out. Let me tell you something about prejudice and racism. And I can tell you this from my own personal life. You can't just sit back and just think it's just going to happen. What you have to do is you've got to be intentional, every one of us, and say, I'm going to deal with this issue of racism and prejudice that is in my heart. 
There was a statement that I read that I loved, and it says, if our vertical reconciliation to God required intentionality, then our horizontal reconciliation necessitates the same intentionality. Our vertical relationship to God, it required intentionality. God was seeking me. I had to respond to his call. I didn't just wake up one day and be saved. I had to take a step of faith. I had to cross the line. I had to be intentional and say, I'm ready for this relationship with you, Christ. Then when I become a believer and I look at my relationships horizontally, I've also got to be intentional there. And for racial reconciliation, I've got to be intentional. It's not just going to drop into my lap. It's not something that's just going to slide in. I'm going to have to be intentional on that. Okay? Number two, recognize your sin of prejudice. It's funny. You know, I've talked to people and they've said, well, I'm not prejudiced. And then all of a sudden, the more you talk to them, all of a sudden they come up and say, ugh, that sounded kind of prejudicial, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that each one of us needs to take an inventory of our life and recognize if we've got that sin of prejudice in there. And if we do, you recognize it. Number three, repent of your sin, knowing that this is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And say, God, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me and repent of that sin. Number four is to repair any damage. Now, what I mean by repair any damage, I'm talking about if there's been a relationship of something you said to somebody or done something to someone and you did it out of a bigoted, racist, prejudicial way, maybe you didn't mean to. But now you look back at it and you say, yeah, it was wrong. And there's been some damage in your relationship, I would say repair the damage. Sit down with them and say, I'm just going to ask you to forgive me on this. That was wrong as to what I said. And number five is to raise your racial IQ. Raise your racial IQ. This is so important. We need to learn about other races and cultures, and we need to build relationships with those of different ethnicity. I'm not asking you to be colorblind. I think that's wrong. We're not asking people, oh, we just need to be colorblind. No, you don't need to be colorblind. You need to see all the different colors. Because when you're colorblind, it just pretends that our differences don't exist. There's no need to deny that there are obvious ethnic, cultural, and historical differences that distinguish us from one another. But what the gospel does is it compels us to celebrate our ethnic distinctions, to value our cultural differences, and to acknowledge our historical diversity on there. We need to learn about other races and cultures. You know, the two words that that have been sitting with me throughout these weeks is education and exposure. Education on races and cultures and exposure to people of other races. Education on races and cultures. What you need to do and I need to do is we need to debunk a lot of these stereotypical myths that have been either shared in our homes or at work or at school. And it comes by education, learning about them. I I talked to a a person uh, weeks ago or so, uh, an African-American who told me about the city he lived in and when they went to, uh, to the high school. He said, we were the first African-Americans to be in a high school. After I was there two weeks, I was sitting at the lunch and there were some uh, white guys that we'd been going to class with. And seriously, the guy looked at me and he says, so where's your tail? Where's your tail? I said, no, he didn't. He says, yes. Five times I said, no, he didn't. He said, yes. I said, oh, come on. He said, Yes. Where's your tail? Where'd that come from? 
sitting around the house, I guess, talking about, well, a bunch of monkeys or so. And so all of a sudden, kids said, oh, I guess they got tails. You look at that and you say, no, yeah. Guess what? There are other stereotypical myths that we may be holding on to that needs to be debunked. And it comes through education. You education, you learn. Learn about races. Learn about cultures. Begin to value the differences that are there. But then the second one is the exposure. And that is exposure to people of other races. When we take mission trips and you have an opportunity, whether you work in the inner city or whether you go to another country and you get to go arm in arm, side by side, working with people, it's amazing how race just drops because you're there with individuals and you begin to see their heart and you see where the needs are and you love to work with them. There's a pastor by the name of Albert Tate, who's an African-American pastor in Monrovia, California, that wrote something that it just opened my eyes. It was amazing. And he talks about in John chapter 4, when uh, Jesus and the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. And as he looked at that passage, he brought out something I had never seen here. I know, understand with Jews and Samaritans how they didn't like each other. Galilee is here. Jerusalem is here. Samaria is here. Jesus was going to travel from the area of Judea and was going to go to Galilee. Most Jews take the long way around so they don't have to go through Samaria. Now, the quickest way is to go the straight shot, but they don't want to because they don't want to deal with Samaritans, so they just walk around them. Look at this. In verse 3, it says, He left Judea and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to? He didn't have to. He could have gone around. But his mission was he had to. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a minute. He's got 12 men, disciples over here, that he is building them up and training them and teaching them because one day when he dies, raises from the dead, ascends to heaven, falls in their court to spread the gospel everywhere. And he says, these guys are no different than all the other Jews, and that is that they look down on Samaritans and Gentiles in general. They've been culturally conditioned to do this. And this is a bit of a problem for Jesus because he was calling them to take the gospel to the world. So their prejudice and racism had to be dealt with. So what did he recommend for them to do? Read a book? Did he recommend them just to listen to more of his teachings? No. He took them on a field trip. And he took them down into Samaria. What these men needed were meaningful experiences with other races. They needed to get up close and personal with the very ones that they despised. And so what Jesus did was he took the shorter option. It's short in traveling, but it's longer in a traveler's heart to be able to say, we're going to go through Samaria. And as they went through Samaria, he had an encounter with this woman at the well And when she went back and she told everyone that she met the Christ, and when they came back, they spent the next few days ministering to these Samaritans. These disciples, who had never had anything to do with the Samaritan, were now thrust into a position to where they were able to see them, talk to them, see them gain the gospel, share meals with them, and all of a sudden, their eyes are opened. They got the exposure. 
And Albert Tate made this statement, God's means of healing racism in our hearts is through shared experiences with the very people that we are prejudiced against. And that's where it starts. That's where it starts. A couple days ago, I talked to Dr. Wesley at Greater Shiloh. I was asking him some questions about this message. Education exposure is what he told me. And he said on the exposure, he said, um, that is so important to begin to build those relationships. And our partnership with Greater Shiloh from day one, Dr. Wesley has told me, our goal is to build relationships. We're not looking for money. We're not looking for anything. We want to build relationships. And that's when we begin to transform this city is you build those relationships. Albert Tate, that same pastor, commented about what Dr. King had said. Dr. King said, the most segregated hour of the week is when? Do you all remember what he said? 11 o'clock on Sunday. That's when everybody had services at 11 o'clock. The most segregated hour in the church, in in this country is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Albert Tate says this, I would argue that we will never capture a truly diverse picture of God's kingdom at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning unless we win the 6 o'clock hour on Saturday night. I'm talking about your living room, the place where you do life and you invite people into the fold of your family. We are called to live like Jesus when he interacted with Samaritans, tax collectors, etc. We are called to break through these barriers, inviting people to share life with us. People who do not look like us, talk like us, think like us, or even vote like us. If we target our living rooms as the primary places that are in need of the transforming power of Christ we will inevitably see our sanctuaries transformed. That's a powerful word. Constantly we will have people say, I think we need to have more people of color in our worship center. Well, I learned from Albert Tate here a good thought. Well, the reason that we don't have more color in our sanctuary is because we don't have more color in our living rooms. And what it starts is with each one of us saying, guess what I'm going to do? If I'd like to see more African-Americans here in our church, I'm going to befriend some. If I'd like to see more uh, Latinos in our church, I'm going to befriend some. If I'd like to see some more Asians in our church, I'm going to befriend some. And not tokenism, not that at all. It is just being intentional. And you know what will happen is, is we build those friendships They're going to be friends and they're going to want to come and they're going to worship with you and they're going to be here and be a part of this and all of a sudden our church begins to look different. And it didn't look different because the pastor and staff came up with some cool plan. It didn't didn't become different because we preached some series of sermons. It became different because every one of us, me included, began to be intentional and began to say, I'm cutting through the racial line and I'm looking at a person. I'm not looking at him by the color of his skin. I'm just looking at him as an individual. I say, I want to build a relationship with you. And when we open up our living rooms, then we're going to make a difference in our worship center. The final thing for you to think on is this. Remember God's promise about the future. Whenever racism begins to creep in into our hearts and we begin to feel prejudicial, I want you to remember what heaven's going to look like. 
Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, look what he says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Every nation, all tribes, all people, all languages, hey, they're all going to be there in heaven. So let's get started here on earth. And let's build those relationships and let's battle that prejudice and that racism that we all have to deal with. Build those relationships. Education, exposure, and just wrap our arms around the gospel and around people. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, for your word in that when we look at uh, these issues that we deal with, that you've already covered them in your word. It's not like we've got to build a case for something that's not there. It's so clearly in your word. And so, Lord, as we come to the close of this service, I pray your spirit just speaks to our hearts. Have there been feelings of, of racism or prejudice? And Lord, even now at this moment, that we'll ask you to forgive us of that. And let there be repentance. And may you begin to do a new work in our hearts. And to know that our focus is, is to be on, on our brothers and sisters, wherever they may be. And to know that we're to share the wonderful claims of Christ with them and to love them and to accept them and to minister to them. No matter what the color of their skin is, no matter what language they speak. So Father, may we be that type of people. We love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.